Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. He was a champion of beat writers in the 1950s, a poet, publisher, and owner of the celebrated City Lights bookstore on Columbus Avenue in San Francisco. Lawrence Ferlinghetti died Monday at the age of 101. We'll have an appreciation of his life and work and the role he played in the literary and cultural life of his adopted city. Then, with rising numbers of violent crime, including many directed at Asian Americans, Oakland's new police chief, Laron Armstrong, joins us to discuss his plans to strengthen ties between communities of color and the OPD. That's all ahead on Forum, right after this news. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer. Welcome to Forum. And I'm here this week as KQED begins the search to find a permanent host for the 9 a.m. hour after Michael Krasny's retirement. As you may know, Mina Kim has been named the permanent host of the statewide 10 to 11 o'clock hour. Until we find a permanent new host for the 9 o'clock hour, we'll be bringing you lots of different voices and perspectives, which brings us to our topic right now, the life and times of a literary giant. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. He was a friend and supporter of beat poets like Allen Ginsberg, publishing their writing and his own, including Ginsberg's infamous poem, Howl, which got him arrested and led to a landmark First Amendment ruling. Lawrence Ferlinghetti died at 101 this week, and joining us to remember and celebrate his remarkable life are Elaine Katzenberger, publisher and executive director of City Lights Books. Welcome, Elaine, and, and our condolences on the loss of your friend. Thank you. Good to be here. And also joining us, Oscar Villalone, managing editor of Ziziva. It's a San Francisco-based literary journal. Oscar, good morning to you as well. Good morning, Scott. Before we get going, I want to give out the phone number because uh, in, in a town like San Francisco, a lot of people came in touch with Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, personally and were touched by his writing and his life. And so I'm going to open the phone lines right away. Give us a call at 866-733-6786 if you'd like to join us. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us. It's forum at KQED. Org. Elaine, you probably knew Lawrence Ferlinghetti as well as anyone working with him so closely for so many years. What was he like? He was, um, he was surprisingly uh, down to earth, considering what a accomplished life he was living. And uh, he, was, he was a shy person. So um, it wasn't easy to get to know Lawrence immediately. He, um, by the time I 
met him in 1987. He'd been um, a literary celebrity for many, many years. And so um, he had a way of of being able to manage that that um, I think worked for him. Um, he was he was really uh, quite friendly but reserved. And uh, it took a while to for us to uh, break through that and become comfortable with each other in a, in a, in a truly authentic way. Uh, but once we did, um, I began to understand how truly extraordinary it was that he managed that kind of personality all the time, because um, I think he really was a larger than life person and he was easily recognizable for all of his life. And so there was never a time that somebody didn't know who he was and want to speak with him, um, which isn't an easy burden to carry, uh, along with every all of the other um, ways in which a person uh, who is a poet but also a publisher has to move through the world. You know, a, a publisher, especially a publisher of Lawrence's stature, there are a lot of people who um, just naturally um, gravitate towards you and, and might want something from you. And... Um, it's difficult to uh, to manage all of that gracefully, I think. And um, more than most publishers, I think Lawrence really was a target for people's aspirations and um, and notions of of an ideal place to publish. Um, and that's not an easy burden to carry. And he was really quite. Um, graceful about it and it was inspiring to me to to see that and and to learn how to model myself somehow on that yeah as we said he was 101 when he passed this week how did he spend his time in his final years was he still writing uh in the end no because lawrence lost his vision the last couple years of his life and that made life very difficult um but you know of course he published his last book when he was 100 years old, and he was working on that up until it was published in 2019. So um, he was definitely still writing and still working. Um, But once he couldn't really uh, see what he was writing, I think it just became too difficult as a project for him to really feel joy in taking on. So, you know, I I sometimes would ask him if there were poems in his head, um, and I think there always were. But um, but for the last period, no. Hmm. Oscar, it's been said, in fact, I think it's said on City Arts' website that uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti helped to democratize American literature. What does that mean, do you think? Well, I think it can mean uh, two things. Uh, one is City Lights itself, the bookstore, because it started off as you know, offering paperbacks at a time when paperbacks uh, weren't easy to find. That in itself, you know, the paperback book was a form of democratizing literature. People getting, uh, you know, hold of copies of classics uh, beyond, you know, the pulp work um, that was being published in paperback. That's one. And two, I think it's I think it may be talking about a Coney Island of the mind, and that's to say his his poetry, and also the poets and writers that uh, he nurtured, and either through City Lights books itself or through the bookstore, or I think or just his very presence in the community. Um, it's hard to think of, say, you know, the, you know, it, it's hard to think of movements such as the Beats, uh, you know, without uh, a, the leadership of, of a of a Ferlinghetti. Of course, it's possible to think of, you know, uh, the Beats without the publication of Howl, 
yeah. uh, you know, by city lights. Yeah, and that was, I think, in 1956. And it was very controversial, as I said at the top there. Uh, it uh, led to his arrest and a very celebrated trial and a, a victory for uh, First Amendment, uh, the First Amendment. But what was it, uh, Oscar, about Howell that was so revolutionary? Well, in Ferlinghetti's words, uh, it was the, it was like rock and roll. You were hearing poetry that wasn't about poetry, as <laughs> if I'm, to paraphrase him. Um, what does that mean? It was something. Well, it's 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 coming from outside of let's say academia. It's coming from. Uh, it's not self-referential. It is. It's coming from the particular time and place and uh, of a heart of a, of a vision. Um, you know, I. Uh, I was going to say that there's a connection here between, I would say, how in his own book, too, uh, from Lingetti, it's a Coney Island of the Mind, in that it's a, sort of the same thing. It is, a, it is a direct connection between the poet and the reader. It's beseeching in a way that I don't think you were seeing before. It was, you know, um, it, the language, uh, in, well, in the case of how, you know, the depiction, depiction of sex between men and women and men and men, you know, these sort of things. Um, it was uh, like a lot of, like like a lot of good art. It was up until that point something you hadn't seen before, and that you know freaks people out. Um, in the in the case of how though, I mean specifically is the obscenity, you know that 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 yeah. Uh, the, well, know, and I think he I think he sold that book to an undercover San Francisco cop, which tells you a little bit about San Francisco in the fifties. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and um, you know uh, uh, Lawrence stood trial, but also arrested with him was. Uh, Shig, uh, Shig Moaru, who was um, uh, the, uh, running uh, the, the, the front of the store, then. I think Elaine could, could you know, give the, the specifics on that. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, he was arrested, and, you know, and the rest is history. I want to give out the phone number again. We're talking about San Francisco literary icon Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died at 101 this week. Give us a call now and share your thoughts about his life and legacy, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And let's hear a little bit of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. This is him reading out in front of City Lights Bookstore a little bit of his poem titled The World is a Beautiful Place. The world is a beautiful place to be born into, if you don't mind happiness not always being so very much fun. If you don't mind a touch of hell, now and then, just when everything is fine, because even in heaven, they don't sing all the time. The world is a beautiful place to be born into, if you don't mind some people dying all the time or maybe only starving some of the time, which isn't half so bad if it isn't you. Elaine Katzenberger, what does that little clip and that poem, what does that tell us about the way Lawrence looked at the world? <laughs> that is a classic for lots of reasons, and I think one of the reasons I love it is because it is a classic Lawrence uh, approach, which often involved a really scathing um, analysis of humanity and its foibles, um, but also a sense of humor, a kind of good-hearted irony about it all. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that he was definitely a romantic idealist, um, and he... And for someone like that, you know, living in the world can be painful and difficult. And so you develop a certain coping mechanism that might be 
humor. Um, and Lawrence uh, carried himself with that consistently, and he loved making um, kind of obvious jokes. So his poetry is filled with that kind of sensibility. Um, and you can you very, can almost hear you can almost hear a twinkle in his eye too as he's reading that, like a little oh, bit of humor, completely. right? Well, and as Oscar was saying, I think that he nailed it uh, in terms of it being a direct appeal to the person listening or reading. It, it is a very conversational kind of style that he had, um, inviting a person in to look at the world alongside of him. He definitely was a person who um, had an acute eye, and uh, his poetry is really very observational in that way. Yeah. He's inviting someone along. We're uh, coming up to a break, but let's see if we can sneak a caller in here. Persis in Berkeley, you're first. Welcome. Hi. I just wanted to say how privileged I was to participate in a reading by Iranian-American writers in 1999 at City Lights, and it was because of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's wide-eyed perspective on the world that he welcomed international writers and poets into the store, but also into his press. He was the first one to publish a a novel by an Iranian-American writer, Nahid Raklin. And when the anthology that I edited came out in 1999, he was very gracious and welcoming towards me and the other readers. So I think his perspective was deeply international as well as uh, you know, counterculture, and that he was very cognizant of welcoming writers of color into the world yeah. of City Lights Press. Persis, thank you so much for uh, your thoughts about Lawrence Ferlinghetti. We're going to continue our conversation uh, with Elaine Katzenberger and Oscar Villalone. In just a moment, we're going to take a short break. You can join the conversation. This is a half-hour segment, but give us a call at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And we continue our conversation now about the life and legacy of Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who died at 101 this week in San Francisco with Elaine Katzenberger. She is executive director of City Lights Books and Oscar Villalone, managing editor of Ziziva. And let's read some listener comments. I'll give out the phone number again as well. It's 866-733-6786. Richard writes, as a lawyer, we owe Ferlinghetti a debt for his willingness to publish and go to jail for the right to publish. A lot of people talk about ideals. He lived them. And another writer, another listener, rather, writes, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was one of the first poets I learned about in grade school. Boy, where did you go to school? (laughs) Uh, His work made me realize that poetry didn't need to be so formal. It was a revelation for a little girl to read. He will be missed. Um, Oscar, or actually, let me ask uh, Elaine this question. You know, I I think, uh, you know, in the first or second or third, at least, sentence of uh, most remembrances of Lawrence Ferlinghetti, you're going to hear about Allen Ginsberg and the beat the beat writers. Did he consider himself to be a beat writer? 
No, he didn't. Um, he was pretty clear about that. He, um, you know, he was probably about 10 years older than the average age of the beat writers. And so his his life and his formation, while it overlapped, you know, 10 years is a lot when you're a young person. Um, and also stylistically, I think he was different. While the beat generation writers, um, poetically anyway, I think that they did share a kinship in this understanding of poetry as a very that it should be a popular form and that it and that it definitely was an uh an oral form it wasn't necessarily something that was meant to just live on a page and and be an experience that a solo reader has alone with a book but it was also very much supposed to be something that groups of people would experience together and be moved by and so in that way i do think that um he and the beat writers definitely shared some um some aesthetics, definitely some politics, you know, um, the kinds of things that the Beats were talking about. It's why Lawrence published them. But, you know, uh, and when I would speak to Lawrence about this or when people asked him questions, he would say, well, you know, I was a publisher and I was just beginning. And a publisher looks for books and a publisher wants to publish what's happening. And the Beats were what was happening. And that's what I did. So I think that it wasn't some... Um, what he did was really... Publishing Howl, obviously, was uh, a decision he made on many levels, aesthetic and political. But um, the having to defend it at trial and the um, acclaim that he and that book got as a result is really probably brought the Beat Generation into a much, much wider consciousness and kind of launched that in a way that... Um, would not have happened, I don't think, without that. Yeah. Let's go to the phones now and Ron in Corte Madera. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, my story about Lawrence is around 1970, I was working on his Volkswagen and somehow I wrangled myself and two friends a, a night down in, in uh, Lawrence's cabin in Big Sur. And we were having dinner and wine and having a good time. And someone posed the question, would Krishnamurti be able to fix a flat tire. Krishnamurti was this great teacher we all kind of knew about at the time. And none of us actually answered the question. And uh, we all went to sleep. We had a nice time. And about 2.30 in the morning, Lawrence woke us up and he said in a loud voice, Krishnamurti would never, ever get a flat tire. And we all slept peacefully. <laughs> there you go. You had your answer. Um, what was it like to spend uh, that time with him in the cabin down there? Boy, what a, what a memory. Yeah, it, it was really uh, just an incredibly serendipitous moment. And I don't know, somehow we both took a liking to each other. As I said, I, I worked on his Volkswagen. Did you all drive down there in his Volkswagen? Years. No, no, we, we went down in separate cars. But, <laughs> okay, just uh, uh, No, no, I, you know, and I don't know why, but he was very open. And at that time, he said, why don't you come on down tonight? I said, I something about, oh, I'm jealous of you going down there. And he said, oh, please, come down. And I said, well, I have two guests. Well, bring them, too, hmm. you know, as long as you bring a good bottle of Italian wine. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and that was really fun. And I, and I you know, loved his poetry. I, I once read um, The Long Street in a college class with my brother playing the flute. So, you know, he was, when I heard of his passing, I just, uh, it really hurt. I mean, it, it was like... Uh, 
like an old friend somehow in my past had just gone. Mm. And, you know, my memories of him were wonderful. And I've never called in before, so this is a big deal. Yeah. Well, Ron, thank you so much for sharing that uh, terrific memory of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Really appreciate it. You'll always have that. I will. Thank All you. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to uh, ask you, Oscar, you, you alluded earlier to Aconia Island of the Mind, which was uh, his, uh, his collection of poetry, which uh, was published in 1958, and I believe it was translated into nine languages, sold over a million copies. What was it about that work that struck such a chord with so many people? I think, um, well, I think a couple of things. One, the style. Um, as Elaine was talking about before, too, uh, you know, the, the way, the, the, the direct appeal uh, uh, to the reader. Uh, two, that it was a sort of combination of the political and the sensual. Um, I think that really spoke to people. But also, well, let's add a third one, the context in which it comes out, you know, during Eisenhower's America, when they're seeing this great conformity and there's this sort of uh, blinkering in terms of, uh, you know, what is our purpose in life? What is the, the what is the mission of, of the modern person or the, or the time, the contemporary, you know, in that time. Um, you know, I was just talking to a friend about this. We're obviously, uh, you know, not of the generation of Ferlinghetti, but having read that book as, as basically as, you know, as, as kids, as young people in their late teens, and how profound that book is because it's sure it presents you with a vision of how maybe you should be living. Um, to be more alive, if you will, which is, I think, one of the functions of poetry is to awaken you from your torpor, to make you realize that you are indeed alive, that you have this short time on earth, and then, you know, what are you doing with it? I think that's, I think that was part of its of its attraction, and I, would go, I guess it still remains yeah. part of the attraction. It is a very youthful book, and I say youthful in the best sense, not that it's immature, but that being able to see things with a clarity that often gets, you know, obfuscated or grimied the older you get and the more concessions you make, you know, um, uh, as you do the things you have to do to survive in, you know, in late capitalist America. Yeah. Elaine, I want to ask you about uh, that earlier call from Ron, uh, who went down to the cabin, had that great story spending the night down there with, uh, with Lawrence. Uh, tell us about the cabin. Uh, d does he still own it? And, uh, you know, what, what, hap what else happened down there? I, was, it, uh, was it a common place for him and uh, some of his friends and other writers to go for the weekend or for longer than that? I'm so glad that the cabin entered the conversation because um, for 30 years I spent lots of time down there too. Lawrence was insanely generous about letting friends and people who worked for him at City Lights um, visit the cabin and, and invite their friends down. And um, it was such, it is such a magical place. And, and I was never there with Lawrence. Sometimes I was there right before him and I would be preparing it for him or sometimes right after him and then noticing what he'd been up to when you know, right before I got there. And um, I, but I've seen photos of him there and I always could just see him completely in his element. It was something he really, really loved. And um, it, it is a magical place. He does, he, he did still own it. Uh, it's, it's being, his children will own it now. Um, you know, it's the second cabin that he uh, owned in that little valley um, under the Bixby Bridge. And the first one uh, was sold after a few years. And then he bought this piece of land and built his own 
little cabin on it, which is the one that is being remembered. But mm-hmm. the first place he owned is um, Jack Kerouac uh, wrote the novel Big Sur in that cabin. And yes, all those people went down and spent time there, too. And Ginsburg wrote, you know, a number of poems about the Big Sur Valley down there um, and the walk to the Big Speed along Bixby Creek to the bridge. And, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a gorgeous place, and I really love remembering Lawrence there. Yeah. Elaine, we're almost at the bottom of the hour, but before I let you and Oscar go, uh, what impact has the pandemic had on City Lights, and uh, is it going to continue? Uh, I know that it has a lot of friends in the community and, and more broadly. Uh, what's, uh, how is it doing, and what, what can we expect? We're definitely going to continue. I, I, you know, we have uh, soldiered on through this. It, it's had a huge effect, like it has on everyone and on all small businesses and and individuals. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie; it's been very difficult. Our business is down by um, more than half, uh, substantially more than half, and so it makes it um, very fragile. But we had a huge amount of support last year when we had a GoFundMe campaign early in the pandemic and and the international world rallied in such a moving and generous way. And that's helped us get through this first year. And we're working hard on stabilization and succession plans now. And um, if I may, I'd like to say that the uh, City Lights Foundation, which is a nonprofit part of City Lights, is being mobilized to help with this planning. And if anybody would like to support the future of City Lights, there is a future fund established, and anyone who wants to donate or know about that can feel free to contact me at City Lights, and um, and that's that would be wonderful. But, you know, we are all... City Lights is run by a dedicated group of people, and there is no way we are going to let that place go out of existence. Yeah. I mean, that is Lawrence's legacy, and, and we're determined. It is, and it's such a fixture now in San Francisco, and many people come to the city, and that's one of the places they need to go. So thank you so much for all of you've done to keep the lights on at City Lights Books, and uh, and for all of your memories of Lawrence Ferlinghetti today, Elaine Katzenberger, publisher and executive director of City Lights Books, and Oscar Villalone, managing editor of Ziziva. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back with Oakland's new police chief. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.